Chapter 23 of Ashton Kirk, Investigator, by John Thomas McIntyre. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pete Milan. Chapter 23 The Secret of the Portrait. The morning papers had all announced the fact that the detail of police would that day be withdrawn from the scene of the murder in Christie Place. With them, it had been a mere matter-of-fact news item. But with the evening sheets, it was different. They had had time to digest the matter, and their view of the order was one of surprise. Two or three allowed this feeling to expand itself into headlines of some size. A few also commented on the situation editorially. Superintendent Weagle had been interviewed. He stated that he could not be expected to maintain a detail at 478 indefinitely. Even with the police withdrawn from within, so he maintained, the place would be as effectually guarded as were other buildings. What more was required? Ashton Kirk read all this with some satisfaction in the late afternoon. They have given the thing even more publicity than I had hoped for he said, as he helped Pendleton into the details of a rough-looking costume which that worthy was donning. It must be a bad day for news, and they have plenty of space. At any rate, anyone who is at all interested in the fact is now aware that after six o'clock this evening, 478 Christie Place will be unguarded, except for the regular patrolman. Of course, with a glance at Pendleton and another in a mirror at himself. If a brace of rough-looking characters are hidden away within, there will be only a few who know it. He opened a drawer and took out two black shining objects. The short barrels in blocky shapes told Pendleton that they were automatic revolvers. They will throw ten slugs as thick as your little finger while you're winking your eyes many times said Ashton Kirk. They each slipped one of the squat, formidable weapons into a hip pocket. Then they made their way out at the rear of the house. With the collars of their sack coats turned up and their long visored cloth caps pulled down, they hurried along among the dull-eyed throngs that bartered and quarreled and sought their own advantage. And when, in the uncertain dusk, a wagon drew up at 478, and two sack-coated cloth-capped men began carrying parcels up the stairs, is it any wonder that Berg, watching from the window of his delicatessen store, said to his clerk, That furrier that rents the rooms by the third floor is putting some more things in storage over the summer yet. And when the wagon finally drove away, neglectfully leaving the two men behind. It is not surprising that the fancy grocer did not notice it. And then, when the two policemen who had been on duty during the afternoon came out, carelessly left the door unlocked, looked up to make sure that they had left none of the windows open, and then strode away with a satisfied air that follows a duty well done, who so keenly watched as to suspect? The shadows on the second floor lengthened and grew grayer. They thickened in the corners. P. 
pieces of furniture grew vague and monstrous as the darkness began to cling to them, and their outlines became lost. Suits of armor loomed menacingly out of the gloom. The last rays of light striking palely upon helm or gorget. Hideous gods of wood and stone smiled evilly at the two watchers. "'There was food in the bundles which we carried up, then?' commented Pendleton, as he lay back on the old claw-footed sofa. "'Yes,' answered his friend. "'The person or persons whom we expect will hardly come tonight, though we, of course, don't know. If they fail to appear, we shall be forced to stick close to these rooms during the whole of tomorrow, and also tomorrow night. Perhaps it will even be longer.' "'In that case,' said Pendleton, a little disconsolately, "'the eatables will be very welcome. "'But I hope we won't have to stay long enough to finish them.' "'Perhaps,' said Ashton-Kirk, "'I've let you in for too hard a task in this, Pen?' The other rose up instantly. "'You couldn't give me too much to do in this matter,' declared he earnestly. "'I would do it alone if you were not here.' And I had brains enough, Kirk. The thing must end. If it goes on much longer and I keep seeing these infernal insinuations in the papers, I'll go completely off my chump. There was a little silence. Then Ashton Kirk said, I never knew that you were, uh, this way, old chap, until the other day. How long has it been going on? Why, for years, I think, answered Pendleton. Being very distantly related, Edith and I saw quite a deal of each other when she was a slip of a girl. And she was a stunner, Kirk, even then. Kid-like, I fancied I'd get it all over with when the proper time came. Somehow I never got around to it. She turned out to be a Dickens of a strong character, you see. And she expected so much of life that I got the notion that perhaps I wasn't just the right sort of fellow to realize her ideals. You know, old boy, there are times when a man thinks quite a bit of himself. This is more especially so before he's twenty-five. But then again there are times when he sees his bad points only. And then, of all the unutterable dolts in the universe, he gets the notion that he is the worst. When we were at college, and I held down that third base position and hit 320 in the first season, I was chesty enough. I suppose you remember it. And when I came into my money and began to make collections of motor cars, yachts, and such things, I thought I had taken life by the ears and was making it say uncle. Well, we're only grown-up boys, after all. I recall that I thought I'd dazzle Edith with my magnificence, just as Tom Sawyer did the little girl with the two long braids of yellow hair. Do you remember? And it was after I discovered that she was not to be dazzled that I sort of gave up. I wasn't anybody. I never would be anybody. 
and Edith would be the sort of woman who would expect her husband to take the front at a jump. And no sensible person could imagine me at the front of anything. Unless it was a procession on its way to the bow-wows. I think, said Ashton Kirk, that you began to prostrate yourself before your idol. And when a man takes to that, he always gets to thinking meanly of himself. The attitude has much to do with the state of mind, I imagine. Miss Vale is a courageous, capable girl. But you can never tell what sort of a man a woman will select for a husband. Girls have fancies upon the subject, and give voice to them sometimes. But it is the man they choose and not the one they picture to whom you must give your attention. I suppose that is true enough, said Pendleton. Miss Vale's evident strength awed you, went on the other, and then your timidity began to magnify her qualities. No woman is what she seems to be to the man who loves her. Miss Vale is not so difficult to please as you thought, I fancy that her engagement to young Morris proves that. "'There you have it!' cried Pendleton. "'That's it, Kirk. I've stood aside, considering myself unworthy, and allowed a fellow to slip by me who is as colorless as water. Alan Morris is no more fit to be her husband than—' At loss for a simile, he halted for a moment, and then burst out, "'Oh, he's impossible!' So far as we have tested him, certainly, agreed Ashton Kirk, he has shown no great strength of character. He's acted like a frightened child all through this affair. He's mixed up in it, and through his weakness allowed Edith to also entangle herself. Again and again he's run to her, or called to her, to tell her of some fresh complication that he'd gotten his frightened self into. And to protect him... She has dared and done what would have frightened an ordinary woman into fits. I think, observed Ashton Kirk, that she has realized his position, to some extent at least. The fact that he is weak has, I think, dawned upon her already. She may also see his evident selfishness before long. If she does... Why, might there not still be some hope for you, Pen? Pendleton shook his head in the gloom. I'm afraid not, said he, hopelessly. Somehow a weak man makes a great appeal to the woman who has grown to care for him. He arouses her mother instinct. And Edith is so strong that her pity may induce her to do her utmost to see him through this trouble, interrupted Ashton Kirk, but it may not carry her much further. When once the thing is over, a reaction may set in. Who knows? But Pendleton refused to be comforted. For a long time they talked of Edith Vale, Morris, and the killing of Hume. Finally, Pendleton said, I suppose we can't smoke here tonight, can we? 
No, the lights might be seen, and we can't tell what sharp eyes are watching the place. Pendleton sighed drearily. There were many clocks in the rooms. The policemen must have amused themselves by winding and setting them. For at the end of each hour they began to strike, singly and in pairs. The brisk strokes of the nervous little modern clock mingled with the solemn, sonorous beat of an old New England timepiece, whose wooden works creaked and labored complainingly. Elaborate Swiss chimes pealed from others. Through the darkness, a persistent cuckoo could be heard throwing open a small shutter and stridently announcing his version of the time. It was some time after midnight that Pendleton began to yawn. Then Ashton Kirk said, Open some of those blankets, Pen, and lie down. There is no need of two of us watching tonight. I scarcely expect anything to happen. Pendleton did not expect anything either, but he said, All right, I will. If you'll wake me in a few hours, and let me take a turn at it. Ashton Kirk agreed. Pendleton stretched himself upon the sofa, and soon his deep breathing told that he was asleep. As the night drew on, the solitary watcher grew chilled in the unheated rooms, and huddled himself into another blanket. But he sat near the door leading to the hall, which was slightly ajar. And though his eyes closed sometimes in weariness, he never lost a sound in the street or a tick of one of the clocks. Through the entire night he watched and waited, almost without moving. It was not until the dawn of a gray, dirty day began to somewhat lighten the room that he aroused Pendleton. The latter expostulated sleepily when he noted the time, but with scarcely a word the investigator took his place upon the sofa and dropped off to sleep. About nine o'clock he awoke, and found his friend arranging their breakfast upon a small table. "'I say, Kirk,' said Pendleton, admiringly, "'you did this thing rather thoroughly. There's quite a tasty little snack here, and the thermos bottles have kept the coffee steaming.' At the water tap in the rear, the investigator bathed his hands and face. Then he sat down with his friend and did complete justice to the breakfast. Afterwards, with their cigars going nicely and a feeling of comfort stealing over them in spite of the rather uncomfortable night, Pendleton said, You promised the other night to tell me what made you think that the murderers had failed to secure the thing they sought. The words that the promise was couched in made me think that you had also something to show me, and as we could not light up last night, I've waited patiently until today. Now you must ease my curiosity. Come, tell me a few things. Ashton Kirk took the cigar from his mouth. I told you, said he, that the reports of Burgess and Fuller, together with the conversation we had with Tobin, had enlightened me upon these points. As he enumerated them, he checked them off with his fingers. 
why the murder was done, the identity of the confederate of Locke, that the man would return to the scene of the crime. Yes, said Pendleton, those, I think, were the points. The first two, went on the investigator, I will allow to stand for a while, but I promised to illustrate for you, and I think I can do so. Ashton Kirk here arose and passed through the storeroom and kitchen into the bedroom. The writing upon the step in the hall, said he, facing his friend, directed Locke's confederate to look for something behind Wayne's portrait. As all the pictures of Wayne in the place were broken or otherwise showed traces of rough handling, it seemed that the thing desired must have been found. However, I was not sure about that, as I have told you. If you will recall Tobin's remarks of the other night, you will note that the only thing he could admire in the man's character was his fighting spirit. Then it developed that Hume made a boast of having come by this naturally enough. He claimed descent from one of Washington's officers. Tobin could not recall the officer's name, but he related an anecdote of him that was unmistakable. The officer was General Wayne. "'By George!' cried Pendleton. The collection of Wayne portraits was in this way explained. It was also suggested to me that Hume might be an assumed name, that the numismatist might have once been known as Wayne, and that Locke had known him by that name. Of course it's quite likely that he was not really a descendant of Wayne, but he probably called himself Wayne nevertheless. "'I see,' said Pendleton, his hands waving with excitement. "'And in the stress of the moment, Locke wrote the name Wayne upon the step in candle grease, forgetting that his confederate only knew their proposed victim as Hume.' His eyes rested upon the walls, and upon the sneering, unpleasant portrait of the murdered man. He meant that the thing he desired was there, indicating the portrait with an exultant sweep of the arm. And by George, it must be there still. He sprang forward with the evident intention of wrenching the picture from the wall, but Ashton Kirk restrained him. Don't, said he. We'll leave that for our expected visitor. Surely, protested the excited Pendleton. You don't propose to leave the thing there. Think of the risk. You might lose it in the end. For, you know, one never foresees what is to turn up. A fisherman must always risk losing his lure, answered the investigator composedly. They spent the long hours of the day in smoking and talking, and at intervals they ate the sandwiches and other things which had been smuggled in in the guise of packages of furs. And finally the shadows gathered and thickened once again in Christie Place. End of chapter 23